Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. Before you uh, put your song sheets away, I'd like you to look at that last verse one last time with me. If you'll notice, it says there, God of grace and God of glory. And then it asks us to set our feet on lofty places. Set our feet on lofty places. When you read a line like that, what comes to your mind? Uh, What do you see yourself together as a congregation calling for in that moment? Certainly it is a higher plane of living. That immediately comes to mind. Perhaps a lifestyle where it wouldn't just be ordinary, but there would be things extraordinary as components to my life. Uh, Two words that come to my mind when I see the words lofty places is the subject uh, of this particular time that we have together as we look into Luke 17. And that is, we're calling for spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity when we say set our feet on lofty places. Spiritual maturity should be the desire, hopefully, of every Christian. Perhaps that's why you're here. But the question is, what is it? (laughs) Define it for me. Uh, Sometimes the notion of what spiritual maturity actually is or looks like can be rather abstruse or impoverished. It lacks definition or clarity. It's something hard to wrap our hands and fingers around. Some have even reduced it to the mastery of biblical information. But I want you to notice that the hymn says, set our feet on lofty places, not set our mind on lofty places. We're talking about lifestyle here. Christianity certainly begins in the mind. Uh, That's where it starts. That's where it uh, takes root. But to end it in the mind uh, is more of a spiritual abortion of sorts than it is the quest for spiritual maturity. In Luke 17, we find what it means tangibly to ascend into those lofty places. What it means to be spiritually mature And what we are immediately confronted with, as you will skim over this passage that is in our quest for spiritual maturity, there are going to be some high hurdles to overcome. There are some some places where we will encounter some obstacles that will require an extra effort from each one of us. My sophomore year in high school, uh, because at that time I was tall and thin, uh, my high school coach track coach took an eye to me and encouraged me to go out for the high hurdles. Sounded somewhat romantic, you know, leaping over those obstacles, racing down in my lane to the finish line. But I soon discovered that uh, running the high hurdles was no ordinary race. Uh, It took extra effort to run that race. It required extra skills, extra timing. In fact, precision timing, as a matter of fact. And uh, it also took a lot of extra bruises (laughs) to not only my body, but to my ego. In fact, I think after I finished uh, one of my last races, my sophomore year, that the movie title, White Men Can't Jump, was born. (laughs) But uh, clearing the hurdles of spiritual maturity, I want you to know, is no ordinary religion either. It's not an ordinary religion. It requires something extra, too. 
And I think you'll feel that as we read through these first 10 verses. In chapter 17, as Jesus speaks to His disciples, now this is a message for Christians. He's speaking to His disciples. He says it is inevitable that stumbling blocks should come to you. But woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung about his neck and he was thrown into the sea, that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. But which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, would say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? Instead, he will, not, will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me until I have eaten and I have drunk and afterwards you will eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did these things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Does that rub you a little bit? Kind of feel a little tension in that passage, especially for those of us who would desire to be followers of Jesus Christ. Certainly this is no passage for what those who follow what J.I. Packer calls hot tub religion would feel good about. You know, that religion that's comfortable and is to soothe my hurts and to make me feel good about everything. This passage doesn't feel, make me feel very good. What you encounter is the thin air of that, those lofty places for those who would want to ascend into spiritual maturity. Places that are rich in grace, and I want you to know, rich in glory, but are also hard to achieve. There are some hurdles in this. Perhaps you saw them. I'm going to break the passage down around four hurdles, very high hurdles, that you must clear on your way to spiritual maturity. The first is found in verses 1 through 3. It's what I call the not my brother's keeper hurdle. Look again there at verse 1. As Jesus turns to His disciples, He says, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come to you, but woe to him through whom they come. You know, here in the life of our Lord and in His time with these disciples, He is answering the common attitude, What I do is my own business, none of yours. It's the idea that we are not responsible to anyone else for the places we go, for the things we see, for the things that we do. And no one has a right to make demands upon us with regards to our behavior. It's basically like the old proverb that Cain uttered to God when God came looking for his actions. He said, am I? <laughs> am I my brother's keeper? Now that's the question here. You know, in the society-bending 60s, this irresponsible question, am I my brother's keeper, was turned into or at least recast as a more responsible sounding statement. For those of you who weren't there, I was, it went something like this. What I do is my business and it's okay as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. And by that a whole generation 
unleashed itself to do things a previous generation never even thought about. The problem with that was that we thought of time and of hurt only in the now, only in the immediate. We weren't uh, insightful enough to peer down through time and realize what kind of hurt we were unleashing on ourselves. But with that kind of philosophy, we did hurt ourselves. Many of you are here carrying some of the damage of those times. It hurt, and it hurt a lot. And now, 30 years later, we've discovered the painful reality that my business and my behavior cannot be extricated or separated from your business and your behavior. Life just overlaps too much. We're too much of a part of one another. And what I do affects you. And what I say influences you. And where I go impacts your life. That's the painful reality. And somewhere on the road to spiritual maturity, a Christian has to wake up and to face the reality of this high hurdle that almost everything in his or her life is going to impact somebody, somewhere, at some time, for good or for bad. Which adds additional responsibilities, I might add, to my behaviors. And in fact, even some limitations to those things that I consider my freedoms. And that's hard. And that's a high hurdle. In verse 1, Jesus lets us know that because He acknowledges, if you'll notice there, the fact that it is inevitable that sin will entice people. Sin is everywhere. It's inevitable, He says, that stumbling blocks, another word for enticing people to sin, He says, should come into people's lives. But the fact that it's everywhere and the fact that people are being enticed at every moment in no way excuses me to run off unbridled and to think that I don't have any responsibility to anyone else and I can do what I want and go where I want to go. Because you'll notice when you get into this passage in verse 1, you come to a big whoa to that kind of lifestyle. Jesus says, woe to him. Here are the key words. You might circle them. Through whom these enticements come. You see, it's one thing to do wrong yourself. And no matter who has pressured you to do that, no matter how you got to the place that you got to, when you choose to do some immorality, some sin against God and against others, you're responsible for that. We're not talking about that, but I want to make that clear. You're responsible for that, not the person who pressured you into it. But on the other hand, what Jesus is addressing here is another thing altogether, and that is that those who do encourage other people to do wrong bear some heavy responsibility. So much so that when you get to verse 2, Jesus says that in an unspecified woe, there's going to be judgment ahead for you. He compares it to something to let you know that out there is something fairly harsh. Because He says, you know, when you encourage others to sin, in fact, it would be better for you to tie this huge millstone, and it was big, by the way, around your neck and throw yourself into the sea. In other words, if I can put it in our day and age, it would be better for you to commit suicide than for you to cause somebody to sin, to encourage them, to pull them into it with you. Especially, if you'll notice in verse 2, little ones. Who are they? I don't think he is referring specifically to a child. It could be a child, and most certainly the application could be applied to parents and their children for sure. But I think he speaks more generally here. He speaks of those 
who would look up to you. Maybe it's a younger Christian in this fellowship who would look to you for how you live the Christian life, for how you pursue the living God, for how you find spiritual maturity. It might be somebody at work. It might be a neighbor who admires you and respects you. Everyone has at least someone in their life who looks up to them in some way. I know from the influence of this body that many of you have many people who look to you and who admire you and who respect you. Jesus says it is incredibly important that you understand how much He will weigh what you do as it impacts other people. Can I give you three ways that we can possibly fail the little ones around our life and fail to clear this hurdle called not my brother's keeper? The first is pretty obvious. It's this. It is by doing wrong and asking others to join us in the process. That may, say, that may sound simple, but it's still around. It can be something as, as a trivial as taking a piece of gossip to another friend that you have not really fully understood the facts, but because you enjoy what you heard, you invite them in to participate in that gossip with you and you deliver it to them and encourage them to pass it along. It could be something as severe as pressing a young lady into a wrong sexual encounter, not protecting, not esteeming, not overseeing and encouraging something else, but a wrong sexual encounter. And though when she gives in, she's responsible for what she did when she said, okay. I want you to know that you're responsible in an equal way for saying, come on, let's do it. Encouraging someone to do wrong. There's a second way we can fail these little ones. It's by doing right in one setting and wrong the opposite in another setting without acknowledging the difference before a group of admirers who see us in both settings. Few things entice people away from God. Few things move a person away from spiritual growth or stun it than this. Unacknowledged hypocrisy. Now let's face it, we're all hypocrites to some degree. I mean, if there is anything humbling about being a parent is to see your hypocrisy in the eyes of your children being reflected back to you. They let you know what a real hypocrite you are. And we are at points. But that's not the point. It's not hypocrisy. We're all going to be that. It's unacknowledged. It's the refusal to acknowledge or not even giving a thought to playing an image one place and then playing an exact opposite another place. That is unacknowledged hypocrisy. And what it does is it stunts the growth and the life of people who are in the pursuit of God who look to us to point the way. Instead, rather than encouraging them to pursue the living God, it teaches them to play a disgusting religious game, which God hates. There's a third way. It's harder still, and maybe even a more, more controversial in nature. And that is, we can fail these little ones around us by doing something that may be right for us. We have a right to do this, a freedom to do this because we can handle it. But it's wrong for us to do it in certain settings because we do it before people that can't handle it. You know, alcohol, the use of alcohol comes immediately to mind as a real practical application here. The Bible doesn't forbid the use of alcohol. 
But what it does forbid is when it is used recklessly, with no thought, with no regard for those around us who may be tempted or offended by what is maybe our right. The Scripture is real clear how to handle things when it comes to freedom, but it requires great wisdom to apply. But I want you to just keep your finger in Luke 17 and turn forward with me to Romans chapter 14 because Paul speaks to this, and I'm going to paraphrase some of it by inserting the word alcohol because it does address both. In this particular day, the big issue was eating meat that had been sacrificed to pagan gods. But drinking was also an issue in the first century. For those who could and for those who couldn't, and they lived together, and they needed to respect one another. Now, a person who's not spiritually mature, they don't care what you think. They're going to do what they want. But I'm not talking about that person. I'm talking about those of you who want to go to the lofty places. Spiritual maturity. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 14. Would you look at verse 16? He says, Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God, and notice, and also approved by men. So then let us pursue things which make for peace, and notice the direction, and the building up of one another. Do not, he says, tear down the work of God for the sake of, can I insert, alcohol? Don't tear down the work of God for alcohol. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for a man who eats and drinks, I might add, and gives offense to others. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. That's why, by the way, we sang in the hymn in the last verse, grant us wisdom, grant us courage that we may fail not man nor thee. You see, I am my brother's keeper if I want to be spiritually mature. And what I do does impact their life. And I want to do it in a way, even if it limits my freedoms, a way to encourage them to pursue the living God. That brings us to the second hurdle. It's the hurdle I call what to do with our sin or you'll pay me for hurting me hurdle. Look at verse 3. It says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. <laughs> and if he repents, forgive him. Now Jesus here is addressing someone in the church, some other believer, it's a brother, who has sinned against you. Maybe directly, and if they've done something that has directly offended you. Or maybe on the other hand, it's something indirect, and in that they have done something sinful that offends you by their actions, or goes against what you both say you believe as a Christian. When that happens, what do you do? What do you do in that moment? And I want you to know, we're going to stop for just a minute and plant the flag here because this is one of the most crucial questions of the church of Jesus Christ today. For every church authority today is sounding the same alarm, and that is that the church is losing its ability to call its members to account. Churchgoers want to, they say, feel good, not be saved from anything. They want to feel good. That's why Packer calls it hot tub religion. They want to feel good. And when somebody in the church actually takes the initiative to confront a brother or a sister who is sinning, oftentimes they're met with a defiant, who do you think you are? 
What gives you the right to judge me for what I do? Who do you think you are? And right there, we're confronted with this hurdle called what to do with sin. And if that sin goes unchallenged, and if it multiplies over a period of time in the life of a body, then the high moral ground that God is causing His bride, the church, to reach for slowly sinks into a bog. And that's what we see everywhere around us. That's why in our day we have these kind of stories. For instance, Ty Collins, the former Miss Virginia, she can both admit to an affair with a U.S. senator, turn around and pose nude for Playboy magazine, and then gush with excitement over the church that she's involved with. And when asked by a reporter if the church, if her church membership would affect her nude modeling, she replied, I don't think so. I mean, there are a lot of people in my church that have been involved in Playboy. Hmm. Or how about Marla Maples, the other woman in the Havana and Donald Trump breakup, who, by the way, is very religious. She says to an interviewer, I believe in the Bible, but you know, you can't always take it literally all the time and be happy. <laughs> well, I guess not. <laughs> Which is why in some churches, verse 3 is not taken literally. In fact, verse 3 is reinterpreted altogether when it says, and if your brother sins, don't worry. Be happy. <laughs> now we laugh. But did you know that's true here? That's true here in the lives of our people. When sin comes courting one of our members and then somebody takes an initiative, sometimes you hear stories that are that bizarre right here in this church. If you disregard sin, or as many are prone to do in evangelical churches, just withdraw from it. You know, you just kind of get out of the way of it. You just let them go their own way and not say anything. Rather than doing the mature thing, as Jesus says here in this very simple statement, rebuke Him. What happens is, either in both situations, the results are the same. And that is we normalize sin. We make this behavior acceptable. And you know, we see that, don't we, everywhere in our culture, not just within the church, but in American culture as well, when we find a public, in the public sector, the inability to say whether things are right or wrong, to be unable to confront deviant behavior. And so now we call an illegitimate birth an out-of-wedlock birth. We call ongoing fornication a live-in household arrangement. We call the act of sodomy an alternative lifestyle refurbishing these sinful acts with new terminology which takes the bite out of them and makes them for a populace acceptable. John Leo in U.S. News and World Report in an article confronting the social deficit, much of his information taken by, from uh, Patrick Moynihan said this, deviant behavior once defined in terminology as normal now does not need to be confronted are even commented on. The sad truth is that um, the American social crisis won't be solved or even addressed until there's enough outrage to cut through the denial and pretense that just keeps going on and on. Don't you find that today? That same pretense can be in the church where you walk away, turn the other, turn your back, just forget about it. 
Don't let it affect you. May I say as a church, we're not going to live this way. We may go across the grain and we may take some shots for it, but we're going to confront sin here. We're not going to let one man rob another man of his wife and then just say, it's between consenting adults. We're not going to let a man drink himself and his family into annihilation without stepping in in some way. We're not going to let a woman get a divorce, leave her husband, then bring her new boyfriend to this church and sit out there because it makes her feel good on Sunday. And, and instead, you know, by bringing him here, he might even come to Christ. You know, it's kind of new evangelism, evangelism by adultery. We're not going to let that happen here. When that happens, we're going to confront it. And notice Jesus uses the word rebuke. And I want you to know, that is not a nasty word. It's not an arrogant word. It's not a punitive word. If you look it up and see how it's used in the New Testament, none of those ugly meanings apply. It just simply means to rebuke, means to move forward with a standard and stand in front of someone and say that's wrong. Calling it what it is, wrong. Doing it, as the rest of the New Testament teaches in confrontation, doing it in love, doing it with compassion, hurting for the person trapped in that sin. By the word, the word sin here, uh, stumbling block, is the word uh, scandal. It's a re reference to a trap, an animal trap. And doing it with humility, knowing that you yourself are tempted by the same evils. That's what you really do when you rebuke someone. But I want you to know you will never find in the New Testament nor the Old Testament, search it if you will. You will never find a statement, a directive, or a command to overlook it. This is a pretty high hurdle, standing in the face of sin. I have heard, by the way, some who have quoted to me in moments like this, Matthew 7, Judge not, lest you be judged. May I encourage you to read that passage. It's, not, it's the opening verse of Matthew 7. But I want you to know it's a whole chapter on judging. And the appeal of Jesus in Matthew 7 is judge one another in the body of Christ. Do it. And that judge not lest ye be judged is just simply a statement at the beginning to tell people if you go to confront somebody, you remember that God is going to judge you and others by the standard with which you judge them. So you judge carefully when you judge. That's what it's telling you to do. Not don't judge. Judge carefully, with humility, and don't be guilty of the very sin you confront someone on. That's what it's telling you there. So to become spiritually mature, you cannot walk away from sin. Can't do that. To become spiritually mature, you cannot be intimidated either by the thoughts or the imaginations you might have in thinking, when I go to that person, they're going to get mad. They might get real mad at me. They might get so upset they'll shake their finger in my face and say, you're going to pay for this. That may happen. And unrepentant, they may walk away and they may leave this meeting when you were there in love and compassion, holding up the standard of Jesus Christ. They may walk away and reinterpret that meeting to their friends and neighbors and workers all around the city of Little Rock about how you pooch kicked them out of the church with no love, with harsh words, and they slander your name. But that doesn't, that doesn't keep you from having to clear the hurdle. I want you to know, I've had my name slandered a lot. 
but I would rather risk having my name slandered and make that payment than not move to a brother or sister in Christ who, if they don't hear these words and they don't turn from their sin, is going to walk away from me into a much greater payment for their sin. And that hurts me to think that that might happen. It's called the wages of sin, and it's death. So I would rather risk my reputation for their salvation. But that's a high hurdle to clear. In the everything is relative 90s, where happiness, not holiness, is now the Westminster Catechism and the chief end of man. I want you to know this unaccountability between people casts a loom, a large and intimidating shadow over the church. It looms large. But to become spiritually mature, you're going to have to make a decision not to retreat from sin, not to turn your back on sin, but to move towards the center in a loving and hopefully saving confrontation. <laughs> now, if both of those hurdles make you want to shrink back from the message today, it made the apostles want to shrink back when they heard it. Because I want you to notice, after Jesus finishes this in verse 5, look what these guys do. They say, oh Lord, increase our faith. <laughs> Didn't you feel like that? Isn't that a good spot for that? Now you feel like you've entered into these guys' emotion and this moment. I want you to notice here in verse 5 that these guys are right in pointing to faith as deliverance. But they have a misunderstanding about faith, and that's what Jesus goes about here in these next verses to correct. Notice in verse 6 He says, Listen, men, if you had the faith like a mustard seed, you would say to the mulberry tree, Be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. See, the mustard seed was kind of the proverbial Middle Eastern smallest seed. It was very, very tiny. And Jesus mentioning that is trying to make a point about faith. But Jesus is saying here, when it comes to doing the will of God, it is never a matter of how much faith you have. By choosing the mustard seed, what He says, what really matters is whether your faith is real. Real. Because if it's real, you'll get results. That's what He's saying here. Real faith, even mustard-sized faith, gets results. And nothing God asks for us is beyond the faith that you presently possess if it's real. That's why from Old Testament to New, God says things like this to His people. Deuteronomy 30, God says, For the commandments I command you today are not too difficult for you, nor are they out of your reach. The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 5 says, His commandments which He gives to us are not burdensome, are too heavy for us. For whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. He's talking about something they already possessed. Nothing in this book is too hard for you. Nothing. There's not one statement that's too hard for you. Because genuine faith, real faith, we're not talking about the kind of faith that you would line up on a creed and you say, I believe that, an intellectually detached faith statement. We're talking about real faith, and real faith is action. And with it, it carries this living quality that just wants to unleash the power of God by seeking to do the will of God. 
G. Campbell Morgan tells the story of a remarkable tomb in Italy. It seems that there was this atheist, and he wanted to build this tomb with an enormous block of granite over his grave. He did this despite his friends who believed in spiritual life, and he said if ever there was a resurrection, he wanted this block of granite to prevent him from rising from the grave. Well, today you can go to that spot and find that huge block of granite weighing tons split in half. You see, what happened was, evidently before the hour of his burial and the time in which they laid that giant block of granite over his grave, some little bird came by and dropped an acorn into that plot. And as the years went by, as small as that seed was, in it was real life, genuine life. And when it burst forth, even a block of granite weighing several tons could not stop it. And so now you find this block of granite split in two with a giant oak tree growing right through it. It's not a question of how much faith. It's the question of do you have real faith? Real faith. Because real faith gets results. God never asked too much of us. And to get to that hurdle, you've got to ask yourself a question in light of the will of God. Not that it's too hard, but do I really believe this is right? That's the question. And if you do, you can clear that hurdle on your way to spiritual maturity. Which brings us to the fourth and final hurdle. It's the I've done enough already hurdle. If you'll notice, he talks about this slave plowing and tending his sheep, and he comes in, but he says, will this slave sit down and eat with the master? No, he won't. He'll tend to the master all day until late at night, and only then will he be able to eat and drink. And then it concludes with verse 10. It says, so you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say this, we are unworthy slaves, and we have done only that which we ought to have done. Does that passage kind of stir you the wrong way? Is that kind of great against your flesh? It, certainly it does. It creates kind of a necessary tension if we're honest because we don't like it. It sounds too demanding, too hard, and it is hard. And that's exactly why Jesus said it to His disciples who wanted to get to those lofty places. Because when you read this, the first thing that comes to my flesh is have to. I have to do these things. I don't like that. I don't like to have to do anything. Come into the church and I have to go to church, they tell me. Have to give my money. Have to serve in the learning center. Have to be in a community group. Maybe have to go on a mission trip. I hear these have-tos through my life. But you know, those have-tos are invitations to you to find at some point in your spiritual pilgrimage a transformation of self. If you don't, you know what you end up living in for your whole spiritual pilgrimage? I've got a term for it. I call it Miserable obedience. That's what you end up with. Having to do it all. Having to go through the motions. Not really wanting to do it, but having to do it. That's not what Jesus Christ intended. But that's what this passage of Scripture draws out of this, this dry duty, this obligation. How do you overcome this grating sense of obligation as a Christian? You know, to answer that, I would answer it the same way a single parent has to overcome it. Take a single woman who's been divorced. She's got three children. She works a 10-hour day. All day long, she puts in her very best, but when she comes home, there's not a time to sit down and watch some movie that she picked up on the way home or to sit there and watch the nightly news. No, she has to come in. She has to meet the demands of these three children. She has to cook. She has to clean. 
She has to stack laundry. She has to pay the bills. She has to make other arrangements, finally get her kids into bed, and maybe 11, 11.30, standing there exhausted, she has a moment to herself. And at that moment, she asks this same kind of question. Why am I doing this? Why is she doing it? Out of obligation? No. She's doing it because she loves her kids. That's why she's doing it. That's why she'll keep doing it. That's why she doesn't mind doing it. And here's what I want you to know. Until your relationship with Jesus Christ moves from obligation to love, you'll be miserably obedient. But it won't be any fun. It won't be exciting. You'll go through the motions and all the invitations of the church to serve. You'll do it, but after a time of doing it, here's what you'll say. You'll say to excuse yourself, I've done enough. Hey, I've served one term in the Learning Center. I've gone down and helped people down at the... A certain uh, uh, home for the poor. I've done those things, so I've done enough. I don't need to be involved anymore. I've done my duty. I've done my service. Now leave me alone. Let me go. Is that what the Christian life is to be like? You see, this particular passage tells us that the obligation is not duty. It's love. And until love drives you, the love of God drives you, then you'll put in some time just to get it over with rather than find the adventure of being an object of service to humanity to make this world better. And you'll miss the thrill of the Christian life. That's what's going on here. You'll move from have to to would love to. That's a tremendous change of perspective. And the good news with that change of perspective is that there will come a place unlike how this passage ends because in the first century, I mean slaves, they finished the day just this way. But Jesus says, I don't call you slaves, I call you friends. And when it's over, when your duty is over, I'm going to meet you there and I'm going to reward you. And I'm going to celebrate your service. And I'm going to acknowledge it before everyone in heaven. I'm going to do that for you. Not because I have to either. I don't have to do that. It's because I want to. You know why I want to? Because I love you. And I want you to love me. And that's what makes an incredibly spiritually mature relationship when it's based on love, not obligation. Years ago, a missionary couple were returning from Africa. They were in the days of Theodore Roosevelt. It happened that after years of service in Africa, they came back on the same boat with the president who had at that moment, been returning from one of his big game expeditions out hunting. As they boarded the ship, there were huge crowds that were there to see the president off. There were ceremonies and bands and all kinds of pomp and circumstance, but no one was there to even say goodbye to this missionary couple who had been 50 years in Africa. They stood there in the railing of the boat, and he turned to her and he said, You know, dear, isn't it strange? Here we've given our whole life to the service of Jesus Christ. Our whole life, we spent 50 years in Africa. There's been tremendous hardships that we've faced and even heartache. I mean, out there on the plains, those African plains, lay the bodies of our two sons. We've given it all, and now look, we leave with no one. And the president leaves in this massive celebration after going on a hunting trip. It isn't fair. And all the way across the Atlantic, as he 
was in that boat, this bitterness kept creeping into his soul as he thought about that. In fact, he told his wife before they got to New York, I bet the same thing will happen when we arrive there. There will be a celebration for the president and no one, no one for us. And it happened exactly as he imagined. There was the bands and the pomp, the circumstance, but no one for them. They slipped off the ship unnoticed and that night rented a small apartment on the east side of New York. Life isn't fair, he told his wife. It really isn't. We gave our whole lives and look what we got. We came back to nothing. She could see that bitterness and that disappointment and wisely she said, honey, maybe you need to tell God that. And he went into the bedroom and for the next several hours was there alone and quiet. And when he returned, she could tell that his countenance had really lifted. There was a difference. He had obviously changed. What happened, she said. And he said with kind of a, a, a voice that quivered, he, she said, he said, you know, I went in and I got down on my knees and I poured out all that pain. I talked to God about all those times I'd served Him faithfully in my life. And you know what? He spoke to me. He spoke so powerfully that it was as if I could hear the very words. And she said, well, what did He say to you? He said to me, remember, remember, you're not home yet. And I want you to know, you're not finished yet. You're not. Life is a continual service to Jesus Christ. That's what this passage teaches. But unlike the slave who gets the leftovers, there is a celebration at the end of all this. An acknowledgement, a reward for every deed done in the body for the service of Jesus Christ. But you have to clear that hurdle by faith and not fall back into this kind of lifestyle that says, you know, I've done, I've done enough. I'm going to live for me now. You're collapsing back into the very sin of life itself when you do that. There is glory at the end. Would you pray with me? And I want you to bow your heads for just a moment, and I want to ask you to imagine this. I want to imagine that you're standing there in the starting blocks of a track meet, and before you are these four hurdles Four very difficult hurdles to clear. And you've got to answer this for yourself. The first is this. Am I my brother's keeper? For some of you young men, are you your sister's keeper? It's the hurdle where I must decide to live responsibly among the people around me. Then there's a second hurdle. I must move towards those who sin. I can't close my eyes to it. I can't withdraw from it. I have to courageously confront it. Then when we clear that hurdle, a third. I must live by faith. Knowing real faith is not in what I acknowledge. But real faith is what propels me to do something. And God is never going to ask you to do something that's too hard. And then finally at the end, before I hit the tape of glory, I must move beyond a sense of obligation and clear this hurdle of love if I am going to serve Jesus Christ for a lifetime wanting to, not being made to. This is the race set before us.
this is the call to spiritual maturity. And so we sing, God of grace, God of glory, set our feet on lofty places that we may not fail man nor thee. May that be true of all of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.